So um, I was listening to this interview with Nico Case. Do you know Nico Case? No, not clear. Okay. She's like my favorite singer-songwriter besides Jenny Lewis. But Nico Case is very like near and dear to my heart. Yeah. And um, she writes these very like – like her songs are sort of almost impenetrable. You know, they're, mm-hmm. not, they're not very classic songs. They're just very like snapshots of stories. And, um, you know, you just can listen to them over and over and over again. And you're just like, I don't know what this is about. But she <laughs> likes it that way. <laughs> um, but anyway, she uh, was talking about, like, the process of songwriting, which I'm really, really into. And um, she said this thing about, like, other songwriters where she said, you know, I hear songwriters like, I'm just a vessel for this idea. It just comes to me. And she said, you know, no, you're not. It's work. And it's experience, selection, and taste. None of those things are just something that happens to you. You are not just an antenna. And I just want to, like, write that before, like, every (laughs) – just, like, everything that's written about any female writer (laughs) or just mostly any writer at all. But it's, like, you know, I just want to remind everyone, like, it's work. And especially with all these articles that came out this week about Emily where it was just like, it just came to her, just came to her out in the moors. Like just, she just received it. And it's like, no, she actually like sat down and she, she worked. Yeah. And she was writing from like a super young age, honing her craft. And you know, there's, that's a thing that people do, but it's, I think that comes hand in hand with like women are allowed to be hobbyist writers, but they're not allowed to earn a profession from it. Right. And so, yeah, if if someone receives something like out of nowhere then that's very different to them like grinding and like grafting to get something done Mm -hmm. yeah it's true and it's still something we're like battling today yeah hello and welcome to bonnets at dawn this is the only podcast that buys a sheet cake in honor of Emily Bronte's birthday. I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austin. And for those listeners who do not know what sheet cake is, it's just um, a flat, it's very flat cake. Is this not a thing no. overseas? No. You guys don't have a sheet cake? We have them. We just don't. I think it's just called cake. Like it may be. Like for like, a, you know, an office party or. I don't know if office culture is the same. I don't know, man. Really? I just sheet cake. Okay, just all right. Flat, yeah, okay. Flat old cake. Just a flat old cake. I didn't make it. We're the only really podcast that got a flat old cake. For- <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Sheet cake is better. I yeah yeah, and I and I ate it, guys. So you guys may have noticed that it's Emily Bronte's bicentenary. Um, the parsonage is actually throwing her a big bash right right this very minute, you know, as we're recording. I'm like looking at pictures on Twitter and Instagram and I'm very sad that I'm not there. Um, also, it rained. Who's, who's doing karaoke? I know, right? Next time we're doing the karaoke party for it Anne's. A real party. Yeah. <laughs> for Anne's bicentenary, guys, please invite us up so we can host bonnets at dawn and bronte karaoke okay not like there isn't it's not like there's a conveniently famous song about tenant of wild fell who though is that, that not yet can sing not yet there's time 
I've got a year to write it and for it to become a karaoke favorite. Yeah. Right. So we can still, we can work on this. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, a big party going on right now that we're missing. And then also there have been like at least 1 million articles about Emily this week, which have been sent to me nonstop, which I'm really grateful for because I I never miss anything. I don't need Google alerts. No, you've got the bonnets. I have the bonnets. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to, um, talk about a couple of them that came up this week real quick. Um, I will throw these on the Twitter and the Facebook group so you guys can, you know, go back and read them if you're interested. One was happy birthday to Emily Bronte, a very nasty woman. And that was by Judith Pascoe, who was on this show just a few weeks ago talking about Wuthering Heights in Japan. Great little article, Judith. And then there was another one that was very interesting. Um, How Incest Became Part of the Bronte Family Story by Dr. Amber Mm -hmm. Paulette. Paulette? Amber? I'm sorry. I'm terrible with names. Um, Another article that came out is entitled The Strange Cult of Emily Bronte and the Hot Mess of Wuthering Heights by Katherine Hughes. So this is the one that sort of like blew up the internet. I love it. Like I love like doing this podcast and how every once in a while something in the Austin or Bronte fandoms just like blows up. Yeah. And then we get tagged in like so many conversations. When people get like tagged in a meme and then they respond and they're like, I feel personally attacked. Yeah. Do you feel personally attacked right now? (laughs) um i did that day it was a little bit because i was sitting on the couch with hannah when i first saw the article (laughs) and i was getting really worked up and hannah was just like come on lord come on like she was like brushing me off and then she's like come on it's just clickbait and i was like it's just clickbait i was like you know what you're right it's just someone trying to like you know get a few hits whatever and then i just was was like okay i'm just gonna put it away and then it was like sent to me so many times and then it was posted that you weren't able to that i was like you know what no i have to say something (laughs) the article asserts a few things that are just kind of like wildly off base um one that wuthering heights is autobiographical which is insane that comes up a lot and again that's another thing i think that's that sexist thing though isn't it it's like yeah a woman wrote it so it has to have happened to her so either it's autobiographical and it's fact and it happened or it couldn't possibly be autobiographical which means she didn't write it those are like right right so those are the things that happen so this absolutely has to be based in the fact that Emily Bronze is a character in Wuthering Heights right and I have no idea which character that would be it's so far from her life it's insane (laughs) she's the dog (laughs) she must be well it does say that the dog hanging in Wuthering Heights is uh sexual foreplay wow so that was well I haven't tried that personally I don't know well give it a shot I'll let I'll (laughs) let everyone know I'm not gonna hang any dogs in the name of research guys don't worry please please don't um (laughs) it also asserts that Emily Bronte was a Tory which I mean who knows who Who knows? knows I would we, love yeah. I would love someone to be like, here is some irrefutable evidence that Emily Bronte was a Tory. Right. Hasn't happened yet. If you guys have it, let me know. Um, 
And the big thing that kind of like pissed me off yeah. was that she would have set her dogs on the suffragettes because she was absolutely would have hated the idea of feminism. Yeah. Which, it was just ridiculous, but not as ridiculous as the real estate that was given <laughs> to the wheelwrights, which is just usually a line or two in any Emily bio. But this is like, I feel like this was like a quarter of the of the article. So it was a big bit. Hannah, it was a huge bit. Do you want to go ahead and read this blurb? It's this it's big bit. Blurb. I'll read this big bit. Yeah. But then you don't have to read the article, guys, because I've read it all to you. Yeah, you don't have to read it. So just imagine, bit about dog sex, and then this bit, and then some bit about feminism at the end. Right. <clears throat> but was Emily Bronte really such a finely tuned instrument, exquisitely alert to the psychic vibrations around her? For four brief months in 1842, she was employed to give piano lessons to three sisters by the name of Wheelwright. Despite her pupil's sturdy-sounding surname, the setting was not Yorkshire, but Brussels, where all the young women attended the Pensionat Hager, one of the best schools in the city. Technically, 24-year-old Bronte was a student teacher, earning her board and tuition by providing music tuition to the smaller girls, but when it came to deciding the timing of the lessons, Miss Bronte was careful to arrange things to suit herself. Refusing to break into her own precious study time, she insisted on receiving her pupils only once the school day was over. The result reported the oldest the result reported the oldest sister Letitia was the sight of three girls ranging from six to ten years old emerging from the music room in tears at having lost so much of their playtime. Fifty years later, Letitia Wheelwright was still recalling Emily matter of factly. I simply disliked her from the first. Not hated, not even snarled, growled or foamed at the mouth, which is how the characters in Wuthering Heights let you know they're feeling cross. No, what Letitia experienced was the cold, enduring dislike towards an an adult woman who had put her own needs above those of the children she was paid to teach. This Emily Bronte, self-interested, pragmatic and stonily indifferent to her moral responsibilities, is not the one the literary heritage industry will be celebrating later this month. I just like hope no one ever writes a bio about me. I don't mind if someone wants to call me self-interested, pragmatic and stonily indifferent to my moral responsibilities. Go ahead. Like, oh, my God. I mean, what? I'm sorry. So many people can say this about me. Like, are you kidding me? It's crazy. The indifferent to her moral responsibilities. Like, but it also, you know, the article just leaves out that she had other students, Louise. Hey, her and Louise were good pals. It was fine. Maybe she just didn't get on with these wheelwrights. Yeah, also, this li- this wheelwright is just saying, like, I didn't like her from the minute I met her. Like, maybe Emily didn't like you. Hmm? Yeah. Considered it's that fine. Letitia. No. Well, that's the other thing. Like, you have to be likable, right? We talk about that a lot as well. Yeah, the idea that a woman writer who isn't, like, I don't know, amenable to people like yeah who cares she didn't want to teach these kids the piano she wanted to study she wanted to like do other stuff that was, like i don't i'm sorry it clearly wasn't I a mean, problem was... otherwise she wouldn't have been allowed to schedule her classes at that time right she was busy she was also teaching herself french this entire time that she was like at school she had stuff to do i'm sorry 
I just feel like Catherine Hughes should know better. Honestly, like she is an award-winning biographer. She's a journalist. She's an academic. She went to Oxford. She was a fellow at the Royal Society of Literature. Like I've actually heard good things about her bio on George Eliot and was thinking about checking it out. I think it's called The Last Victorian. Yeah. If anyone has read it, I'm really curious to hear about it. Um, This has really put me off it now, to be honest. So... There is this paragraph in the article that I keep coming back to. I posted it in our Facebook group. It kind of riled people up, but, you know, I think it it should. Hannah, do you want to read this one too? Victorian women choosing to duck the demands of domestic life to spend their time doing something they enjoyed is hardly a novel idea. Florence Nightingale and Elizabeth Barrett Browning used invalidism as a way to carve out time, space and mental freedom so that they could get on with reforming the Indian army and writing lyric verse, respectively. The difference here is that Nightingale and Barrett were both from wealthy households that could easily afford the extra labour involved in supporting an adult woman in expensive, non-productive seclusion. The family at the parsonage enjoyed no such financial elasticity, which makes Bronte's insistence on the right to abandon her economic obligations all the more audacious. Which I think yeah. is classism. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I think is happening. It's not the issue isn't so much that Emily Bronte was daring to write, it's the fact that Emily Bronte was a poor person daring to write when she should have been mm-hmm. trying to earn money. Like, I get it. Yeah. I do get it, but Branwell was trying to be an artist. He certainly wasn't. What was he doing? I don't. How can you? Yeah. How can you praise one one sibling and then I don't know. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that you're right. It's totally classism, and it just is like. Oh, sorry, I get so riled up. I think Eleanor actually um, said it best when she said, "Sneering at Nightingale, Barrett Browning, and Emily Bronte for daring to carve out some actually very productive free time from the demands of domestic life is such a weird Robert Salvi thing to do. Totally lends credence to Hannah's theory that Catherine Hughes is actually a 19th century, ah, sorry, that Catherine Hughes is actually a 19th century rival in shoddy disguise. But I don't think it's George Eliot. It's some dude who's just been out of print for 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it just feels so personal, feels like a personal attack. And I'm not really sure what Catherine Hughes is really mad about, but I would be happy to have her on the show to discuss it, honestly. So um, another article on The Guardian that you actually should check out is Withering Slights. Emily Bronte was no oddball. This is a discussion with Dr. Claire O'Callaghan, who actually is our guest this week. Um, Claire's awesome. We love her. We've had her on the show before. Check out the episode, um, with Sophie Franklin and Claire. It's called Course Brontes. Last year, they, you know, put together a Bronte conference that, again, I was not able to attend, but But hopefully really would have loved to. Yeah. Next time I will attend and I will bring sheet cake. Um, you can't get that on a plane. I can, I can drive. It'll blow the minds of British security. <laughs> They'll pull out and say, what's this flat cake? Guys, you have to get sheet cakes for your office parties. What is going on? We just have I office I can't believe trifle. it's not a thing. We have an office trifle. It's mm, no good. That's no good. That's not true. Someone's going to come back and be like, when Hannah said that we have trifle in the office, that's uh, inaccurate. Yes, I'm <laughs> joking. Very good. Um, 
I encourage you all, especially you, Hannah. Me. Me. Yeah, you. You. To uh, oh, pick up Claire's personal. book. <laughs> I am getting personal. Um, I love it. It's called Emily Reappraised. It's available now. It was not available when we did the interview. So don't let that fool you guys. You can go on the Amazon machine and pick it up right now. I got it for like seven bucks on my Kindle. That's a bargain. That's like three pounds fifty or like four pounds or something. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a great deal. It's a great deal. And um, you know, educate yourself on Emily. Catherine, pick that pick up this book. It's good. <laughs> I was like, oh, I like that. Finishing on educate yourself on Emily. No. <laughs> Why did you start with Emily Bronte? Like, why why write a book about Emily Bronte? Oh gosh! So there's, well, there's a number of re- there's a whole number of reasons. Um, and one of the ones uh, I think when we spoke before when we did the the podcast with Sophie, I said, you know, I was so inspired by by her book on Charlotte in a way because it opened up a space to talk about the Brontes in a in a fun kind of way, in a in a in a lighthearted fangirl kind of way, as much as a scholarly way. Mm-hmm. And I've always had a bit of, I've always been drawn to Emily and I've always been drawn or had this feeling that Emily has been quite hard done by. When I, when I was younger and I first kind of uh, wanted to find out more about her, I, w- I read uh, quite a few of the biographies and I just, I couldn't quite pin her down. And I felt like what I was reading didn't, didn't 100% chime with what I was thinking about her. And not that i particularly right. thought I wanted to fill that space um and I'm minded of something actually Amy said a few weeks ago which stopped people project onto Emily and I, I think she's she's quite right but I felt I wanted to write something that was really quite 21st century and think about her from the 21st century and think about how I really feel like she'd fit in in the 21st century so all of those reasons mm-hmm. kind of came together and it just it felt like it was the right time for me to kind of get out some of the stuff um that's been kind of you know, running around my brain about her, really. Um, uh, And yeah, Sophie's book was so much kind of fun that it it made me feel like there was suddenly a place and a time to have a bit of fun with Emily and put on those kind of 21st century glasses and think, well, how would she fit today? Um, And how do we see her today? And maybe could she be a little bit more understood um, from today? So that was all of the kind of the inspirations. It was building for a bit. And then I kind of found my opportunity and then where do you start because we just have so little of of Emily right like we just we have a few diary papers poetry Wuthering Heights so yeah a couple of what gave you like the best sense of her well um it's really interesting because even having written this book you have I have a sense of Emily and yet I don't have a sense of Emily I'm still left with that feeling of wanting to pin Mm -hmm. Emily down as you've said, you know, we, we have so much more uh, by Charlotte, particularly, um, because we've only got a few surviving things about Emily. And nearly every single Bronte or Emily Bronte biography begins with that apology. With, and mine does the same. Right. Says, you know, we don't have very much on her. But I also felt that even though we didn't have much on Emily, that actually we could take a lot of what we do know about Emily, particularly the viewpoints we have from other people and family, friends, um, and the kind of recollections and musings. And we could put those kind of stories together that we have about her 
and think about what they tell us, but then also think about what the stories and situations and the encounters, the moments we know about Emily, whether it's her, you know, running and stopping dog fights or um, shooting, you know, from the, you know, with her father, uh, practicing her gunshots, you know, what did that feel and look like from Emily's perspective? And that was right. kind of an opportunity to think about Emily and her voice um, and think about how she might have seen things, seen and experienced events. Um, so I think we, yeah, it's always true that we don't have as much of Emily as we do of the others. And we'll always be trying to fill some gaps in a way. But I think every generation has that opportunity to, to see Emily afresh from their own eyes. Um, and that's that's kind of what I tried to do. I think we do know a little bit more about her than we think at times. Was there anything that sort of stood out to you? Was there any like maybe biography that you would go back to or just a piece of her writing that you would go back to? I actually, I really, and I, I, I'm terrible at pronunciation, so I apologize in advance, but Winifred Garon's biography, she's yeah. obviously written, mm -hmm. you know, quite a few uh, biographies, but I really, really admired her, her book and um, felt that her biography, I read a lot, I went back and I read lots and lots of Emily biographies as well as other Bronto biographies. So, you know, the, your classic, you know all your Juliet Barkers I went and looked at a lot of the letters again Jeron's right. book I returned to again and again because she looks at things through Emily's perspective and um, I think, think that she really kind of opened up an opportunity to do that but she's also quite hesitant to then say things from Emily's perspective which is quite right um, but her mm -hmm. book is is amazing um, I also really like Chittam's A Life of Emily Bronte as well um, and okay. uh, thought that was huge huge fun but I'm also writing you know since those biographies have come out, there's, you know, obviously a lot of Bronte scholarship out there. And one of the most kind of important texts is Lucasta Miller's The Bronte Myth, um, which is more mm -hmm. of the scholarly debunking of all the kind of the crazy myths and ideas about the Bron Brontes that have kind of uh, taken hold over the years. So it was really nice to kind of approach those biographies with thinking about those Bronte myths and Miller's work right. and then thinking about what those biographies have to tell us about Emily and, and Emily's life and her view and experience of things. Now, speaking of myths, like, is there a particular myth or misconception about Emily that you, that you like the most? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there are so many, there are so many. Uh, well, the one that makes me probably sigh the most and have a heavy heart are all the incest myths. Uh, oh, I haven't heard any of those. Oh gosh. The, the, the suggestion of the very close relationship with Branwell, um, okay. uh, which has surfaced a couple of times, uh, which some people seem to take uh, a little bit far. And, and then people mm -hmm. have said that, you know, perhaps she had an incestuous relationship with Anne as well. They, they're just crazy, outlandish ideas, really. There's no evidence for that at mm -hmm. all. And I think it's uh, a bit of just a, a sensational twist on, on sibling relationships. But the, the story right. that I think is we never really talk about as a myth but I think is a big myth uh, or certainly has uh, holes in it is is one of Gaskell's stories Gaskell's story about Emily beating up Keeper and um, oh, okay. I'm convinced that that's another myth um, and I spend quite a lot of time in my book uh, critiquing it and taking it apart because it sits really uncomfortably we don't really know where that story came from it's not attributed to any mm -hmm. source um, Gaskell writes it as though she was there on this landing and staircase when Emily kind of allegedly you know has, came, has thunderous eyes and went and grabbed this dog and allegedly beat mm -hmm. him to a pulp. And um, 
I think it's a massive myth. I think it's a myth because it doesn't sit with so much of the other stuff we know about Emily and her relationship to animals um, right. and her very kind of tender caring side, her nursing side for animals and her huge respect for nature and wildlife and um, the kind of moors. Uh, I just, I, I, mm-hmm. it feels like a massive myth to me. It feels like a bit of a sensationalist story by Gaskell. Sorry, Gaskell. Um, but a sensationalist <laughs> story because I don't, she doesn't, she didn't really like Emily that much. I think she kind of makes a couple of comments to that effect in, in the life of Charlotte Bronte. And, um, you know, showing Emily to be this slightly crazed, I think she talks about her as a kind of, uh, you know, beast. It's like a warrior fight between her and Keeper, who has to be subdued. Mm-hmm. It kind of fits with the, um, you know, putting down the other sisters in order to kind of lift Charlotte up onto a pedestal. Right. So I'm convinced that that's a myth. It, it bugs me that that story is, is so often repeated. It, every few years it resurfaces in newspapers with a sensationalised headline. That's one that really disturbs me as well. And I know I've actually had like discussions with Amy about yeah. it because I'm also like a massive dog lover. Me too, too. Like, yeah. Like, it just, it, it's really upsetting. And, um, you know, then, you know, how people get with like Wuthering Heights, they're like, well, this, this makes sense. This, like, this gels with like the storyline. Yeah. Um, but I, it doesn't fit with my image of Emily. And we also were like, you know, wish, did she beat Keeper to try to really get him to get away from, I think, wasn't he like going in the he bed, was, yeah, you know, Aunt Branwell was not happy. Yeah, he was annoying Tabby by yeah. lying on the beds, apparently. And I, I get that, and I'm sure that there is some elements of truth to it. But the idea that she then went and dragged him down the stairs by the scruff of the neck and kept pummeling his face until he was subdued yeah. just seems like a bit of a load of nonsense to me. Um, and yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't sit. It doesn't sit with the other dog stories that we know about. That we definitely know about Emily as well. Either the the, the right. stopping dog fights. The um, the one where she tried to help the sick dog that apparently went past the parsonage and um, uh, bit her on the arm and she cauterized her own arm. Those kind of tender, more caring sides just doesn't sit with Emily, mm-hmm. the, the dog beater, um, for me. So I, I think we need to do more to stop that story <laughs> circulating. <laughs> um, and yeah, as a dog lover, and I'm completely biased as a dog lover, but I just, it, I can't imagine... I just can't imagine it. I don't see it at all as being um, ever acceptable in that way. And uh, yeah, Emily, the person that cared for all of the broken animals and wildlife she found on the moors doesn't seem to me the same Emily that would then go and beat her own beloved dog, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. She does also seem to me like a person who was more in tune with animals than people as well. Like, yeah, this is she would rather spend her. her time. Yeah, 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 and this is often said about her. And of course, we've got um, we've got some of her writing from when she was in um, Belgium. Some of her essays there, where she talks about um, you know human nature and animal nature, and uh, you get a sense in there of her of why she might be drawn to spending time with animals because she seems to to see more of a kind of honesty and an integrity in them. Than people who, you know, in some of her essays, right. she suggests that, you know, there's quite a hypocrisy to human beings at time. And I think we can probably take that too far. But I think that she definitely saw the goodness in animals and um, connected mm-hmm. with them in, in that way that a lot of animal lovers do. 
Now, you have a chapter in your book that I actually, I cannot wait to okay, read. Okay, which one? I want it, I want it right okay. now. But I can wait till July. Yeah, till July, yeah. Um, it's about Emily and feminism. Okay, yeah. And so I do want to ask you, like, what gives you the sense that, that Emily was a feminist or a proto-feminist? Yeah. Or... So this is a really, this is a really, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, passionate feminist. Uh, and mm -hmm. we love the Brontes, you know, Charlotte and Anne particularly, you know, their novels, Tenet of Wafa Hall, Jane Eyre, they've got these huge, big feminist statements, haven't they, about equality mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Tenet of Wafa Hall obviously taking on issues about marriage and motherhood and, uh, you know, the really difficult situation of, of women in, in the early 19th century. We don't have any of that kind of feminism in, in Emily's uh, or any kind of e equivalent statements or scenes. However, yeah. gender and issues of the question of what it means to be a woman is something that Emily's life seems to have been, you know, something she constantly struggled with, uh, as in expectations of what it means to be a woman, the need to, or, or the pressure to be feminine, the pressure to conform. Mm -hmm. And we have those stories, again, from um, uh, Letitia Wilwright, I think, who was one of her pupils, who went on to be one of Charlotte's friends from Belgium. Uh, the, the famous story about, uh, you know, tr they were trying to get Emily to dress more feminine according to the more fashions of the day, and Emily famously saying, I wish to be as God made me. And it's really interesting how that story has been reported. Um, some people have kind of really read it very much as a kind of, oh, how serious she is and, and how uh, that says a lot about her, uh, you know, re religious and kind of serious, uh, difficult side and her antisocial behaviour. I actually see it much more as a, as a resistance to... I don't want to dress up and play in that way um, right. and more of a kind of try to stop somebody else from pressuring her in her tracks. So we have this kind mm -hmm. of in her life, I think the issues and the kind of, um, uh, she's often talked about in gendered ways and her uh, tends to have experienced a lot of things that weren't typical for women, like the kind of, you know, the going out and being given the gun by her father over her brother, for example. Um, right. And we find the same kind of similar narratives in Weather and Heights. You know, Kathy's narrative is very much about the challenge of what it means to be a woman, the challenge of what it means to be a woman uh, who can marry easily. And, you know, we have the whole scenes where she, you know, her period at Thrustcross Grange when she's really feminized. So I think it's really interesting that that kind of gender narrative, those pressures about what it means to be a woman are there in mm -hmm. Emily's uh, life and in her work. That is incredibly feminist um it may not be the same of a declarations of feminism that we have in her sister's works but those concerns right. for gender pressures are there the other part of it as well is if you look at even you know just looking at something like weather in heights um you know feminism today when we think about it, about it we don't just think about women we think about how you know inequality and, and the pressures of um gender norms you know impact men as well Mm -hmm. And again, we have that in Wuthering Heights. We have so many uh, of the character plot lines in Wuthering Heights are about what it means to be a man, uh, who who is the more manly, whatever that kind of means. And um, we get that kind of masculine pressure, those dynamics being uh, played out between um, Heathcliff and, and some of the kind of, you know, the, the battles he faces in, in the text. We get Kathy setting that up <laughs> between her husband and her, her other kind of love interests. So I think... Emily's mm -hmm. feminism and her challenges around gender norms 
make her very much uh, a different kind of feminist to her sisters or proto-feminist more properly. Um, but I think uh, I think we um, can read her in those ways, definitely retrospectively. Right. It's interesting because I always like have a feeling that she is just by stories or my idea, th- this idea that I formed. Of yeah, her. I mean, she's very typical um, of, of what a woman yes. is. So it kind of speaks to feminism, doesn't it, in that way? Yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, and then it's and then it's hard because I'm like, oh, you know, Wuthering Heights is not the same as like Tenant of Wildfell Hall, yeah. which you just see the agenda, yeah. you know, you just see. And I think that's the thing. I think because we can so easily see those big feminist statements, those big kind of declarative, you know, Anne in her preface to Tenant talking about that kind of feminism uh, or her feminist agenda, and then of course all of the feminism that we that falls out of something like Jane Eyre. It makes Mm -hmm. Emily and Emily's novel, by comparison, look a lot less feminist. And I think that's why scholars have kind of said, you know, it's very hard to read that kind of feminism. But there has been, um, I think we can. I think we need to look at it in just a slightly different way. And again, it's so difficult to not compare the sisters. Um, But I think we also need to resist falling into the, you know, just because she doesn't do it in the same way doesn't mean that she's not a feminist or that she's not writing of feminist issues. Um, Because I think she, I think if she was alive today or she could answer the question for us, she'd tell us she was. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's just also like Wuthering Heights too is such a, it's such a baffling book. It's such a, it's like a book I just need to return to every few years. Yeah, me too, me too. And I don't know about you, but every time I read it, still, I get something different from it. Or I find something that I haven't thought of before about it. It's like the book that keeps on giving (laughs) that way. It really, it really does. And we had very similar reactions, too, when we first read it. Because I was just kind of like, I don't know what this is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think particularly for me, you know, as I've got older and I guess more kind of... um, knowledgeable about feminism or more you know gain more kind of confidence in 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 my own feminism and my own readings of feminism Isabella's story and that whole narrative with Heathcliff I I find it impossible to not read that as a feminist commentary now um Mm -hmm. and I think it's such a powerful kind of a powerful comment about uh somebody who's fallen for the wrong man you know has had her rose tinted glasses on despite the warnings uh but has fallen for the bad boy and um ends up in a really horrible and difficult situation and i think the temptation is then that you know you can end up blaming her you know almost as a bit as kathy does you know telling her to kind of not fall for him and all those things but i don't think that's what emily meant for us to do i think we're meant to have sympathy for her that her husband ends up being this horrible abusive guy um mm-hmm. i can't i can't not see the feminism in that um and i can't imagine the writer of that not seeing the feminism in that it seems to me very much along the same yeah. lines as exactly what Anne bronte was doing in in tenant of Wildfire hall yeah i have not thought about that but that's really interesting actually yeah. now an impossible question to answer really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like what do you think you know motivated emily to write Wuthering Heights or inspired her? Such a hard question to answer, isn't it? I know. It's the hardest question. Yeah. I think, well, again, you know, I'm minded. I think Amy Amy was so right in the podcast when she said people project onto Emily. And we can do that. We can do that, particularly with with a question like this. We can think of all of the things about why 
why Emily, uh, yeah, why Emily might have been motivated to write Weathering Heights. I think what we can tell from the story, she's definitely interested in humans, uh, human emotion. Mm-hmm. She's interested in human psychology. She's interested in um, change, the change of people, the change in generations. I think she's really interested in um, misreading situations. That's how the novel starts, don't we? We have yeah. Lockwood, Lockwood misreading his his new landlord and misreading what he thinks that house is about. Um, so mm-hmm. I think the complexity of, of humanity must have been up there. Um for Emily in thinking about what kind of a story she'd like to write. But of course, we, we also know that, you know, the very pragmatic reason of, of writing novels to, to bring in money and to, to kind of, sure. you know, it continue to allow her to write and to continue to have a, a career and to um, develop develop the, you know, develop Charlotte's publishing plans, basically. Yes, um, but exactly. she must have gone to that story for a reason. And that's, that's the, the main thing I can think of is that the, the complexity of humanity is the big draw there and that's probably why we still get yeah. so much from it when we read it because we're still mm-hmm. this the book doesn't offer you definitive answers does it, it it's constantly changing no. um and maybe that's the richness of it yeah absolutely i mean when i first approached it as a kid mm-hmm. i was like oh I, I was approaching it as a romantic text yeah. and that was just basically because of the book cover which yeah. was i, I believe movie inspired right so absolutely absolutely and then i read it and i'm like what is this this is bizarre this is a terrible love story i think that's the thing and i think still though isn't it interesting i mean people do have that kind of very i think i've used this phrase before the marmite phrase uh phrase uh the marmite response to heathcliff as well you either love him and feel sorry for him and find him this huge romantic hero or he is that kind of devil (laughs) um as he's called it yeah and um, there's no in-between with that. And I think um, the no. voices and the way in which, you know, the kind of, the books afterlives, particularly on screen, have given it this reputation as this huge love story. And that idea that they, Kathy and Heathcliff, love each other across the ages and generations and through life and death, that still dominates. But actually, it is such a dysfunctional love, isn't it? And it's such a dysfunctional yeah. um, kind of, romantic liaison between them and and the way it all unfolds is is horrendous and full of revenge and hate and um bitterness to each other as much as love i i, I just yeah. can't hold that up as the ultimate romance i don't think that's what she meant no. i think it's almost a little bit i wonder whether she's asking us again to not misread what we think is the ultimate kind of form of love. You know, are we again doing that Lockwood thing? I found myself really drawn back to that first chapter of that book. I think it tells us so much about how to read the rest of the novel or ways of reading the rest of the novel. And I wonder if mm-hmm. like Lockwood at the beginning who misreads Heathcliff and then like Isabella, whether that's part of what she's playing with that we, you know, how, how much do we see him as this love figure or not? Um, yeah. So, yeah, that is a good point. Oh, yeah, it's I feel like it's up there with Hamlet. Like, yeah, like these two stories in my mind are like the almost the same. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if we just I mean, you know, my reading, too, is also that we just want to call it a romance as well, because it's written by a yes. woman. And if this were written by a man, then like. Yeah. And, and of, 
we wouldn't really be having this discussion yeah. of is Heathcliff a romantic hero or and not. And also, like you said, I mean, it's not only the kind of all of the film adaptations, but the fact that it's got that influence and that, um, you know, still on our generation. So, you know, the Twilight kind of influence. Right. Um, yes. That reworks whether in Heights of the Romance, doesn't it? it you know, we, we see the yeah. Bella Edward thing becomes uh, Heathcliff and Cathy of sorts. Um, so it's constantly being reworked, I think, in cultural forms as um, as a romance. Uh, even some of the more yes. recent adaptations, the, the grittier ones, I'm thinking of like Andrea Arnold's um, really right. wonderful one. I mean, that focuses just on that first part of the, the narrative as well, which is very much around the kind of the complex relationship between Cathy and Heathcliff. So we mm. want to focus in on that love story, you know, because it's much more difficult to look at it as really horribly dysfunctional <laughs> um, relationship right. novel but she is the queen of the breakup and I talk about this in the book she's got so many great breakup narratives I mean Wuthering Heights is one big extended breakup narrative but so many of her poems I have this vision that you could you know you could basically walk into a bookshop and find like a, a hand-sized pocket book collection of Emily Bronte's breakup poems there are so many of them <laughs> um, she loves she loves the sad sad breakup narrative so maybe that that could counter or that does counter her as this you know big writer of romance right I love yeah, that yeah me too me too Emily breakup queen yeah, <laughs> yeah. Emily were, did you ever have a relationship did you ever love anyone unclear yeah well I think the thing is as well if can we go back to the kind of biography there's all that stuff and, you know, I'm going to mention Amy again because I know she loves William Waitman. But all of that kind of William Waitman narrative around was Anne in love with him? Was Charlotte in love with him? And it never really went anywhere. And then, you know, Emily obviously observed all of that. And then obviously Emily mm -hmm. also saw Charlotte's failed love or failed romance right. with Monsieur Heger. Maybe all of that kind of frustrated romance was the genesis for Wuthering Heights. Maybe it's not the archetypal love. Maybe it's all about the breakup and the frustrated romance. Now, um, this is something we haven't gotten into the podcast at all because um, we haven't covered Shirley at okay. all. We are, we're on a Charlotte break officially. Okay. <laughs> I'll try not to mention that. Because sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's a lot yeah, yeah, <laughs> with Charlotte. Yeah. But um, Emily as inspiration... Mm. And Shirley, that is actually something we have not covered. And um, I don't know if you'd like to tell, do you have a, do you have a chapter about this in your I've book? Talk, well, I've talked about it a little talk bit. Yeah. There, there is some other stuff out yeah. there's, there's, there's a, a little bit of stuff out there on that. So, yeah. So, um, the, you know, the main character, Shirley Kilda is meant to be, or has her genesis in, um, in a representation of Emily. I think Charlotte said to have said something like it's Emily in prosperity and health how um, mm -hmm. she imagined Emily if she had been in prosperity and health. Something to that. That's not a direct quote, but it's right. something along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of Emily's traits and her mannerisms, you know, her nickname was obviously the major. And that kind of gets reworked right. because Shirley's known as Captain Kielder. Um, but some of her traits around, you know, being this strong, independent woman, 
with this huge dog. Obviously, Emily, you know, is known for running around the moors, you know, striding uh, up and down the moors with Keeper. And Shirley is there with Tata, um, who's also a huge, huge dog that follows her around. She's this strong, powerful woman who is assertive, who is in charge and responsible for quite a lot of men, actually. Um, Mm. And, of course, she mirrors the fact that Emily was... um, quite handy with a gun. Uh, Shirley gets out, uh, you know, has a gun wheeled in moments in the novel. So I think there's a lot of the basis of that character. But Charlotte, of course, is doing, um, you know, seeing Emily or reimagining Emily. Like I said, if it's through health and prosperity, she's seeing and imagining her story through that kind of very happy ending, I guess, or archetypal, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of uh, what she would have wanted for her sister. So the narrative obviously doesn't end with with Shirley, you know, dying young and tragic. It ends in a far more positive note. So I think it's really interesting that um, even just thinking about how Emily informs the character of Shirley, again, the kind of woman that comes across is assertive, confident, bold, powerful. Um, All the things you'd associate with, uh, you know, contemporary womanhood and with, you know, that kind of feminist ideas uh you know she's not meek she's very much a mentor to caroline in the novel and i think we can take from that uh a lot of positives about who emily might have been um and certainly how her sister saw her in a really positive way yeah it's it's funny i just feel like i get the sense that charlotte really looked up to emily in yeah a way. yeah definitely and there's also that sadness just... there as well isn't there that that mm-hmm. um that's her kind of uh, one of her fictional, I guess, testaments to her sister. Um, you yeah. know that uh, that's how she's memorialised in her, as much as as obviously going on to write the you know the biographical preface and those kind of things. You know, she she reimagines her fiction, her sister through fiction, and that in itself is really important. And you know, one of the things that um, you know the Brontes have gone on to to live in our culture in so many ways you know they appear in their in novels in their own right and dramas uh, films about them but charlotte bronte was the first to fictionalize her own sister um yeah and it's really important it's really powerful i think rereading shirley just to think about what charlotte's view of emily might have been if this is how she represents her sister mm-hmm. now another really tough question okay like your favorite line like, or lines yeah. from Wuthering Heights or one of Emily's poems, because we're going over sort of just Emily's usage of language this se- like this entire season. Okay, so I'm kind of obsessed with the the line of the of uh, the first line of "No coward soul is mine," which is "No coward soul is my, is mine." Um, it's a great tattoo. It would be a great it really tattoo. Would. It would be a wonderful tattoo. It really makes me think that Emily Bronte would probably have that tattooed on her. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's really interesting, I think, to read some of Emily's poems uh, and think about who she was through them. There's a big danger in doing so because it's it's we can lose sight of the meaning of a poem or we can reduce the poem by reading it solely all to, you know, through an autobiographical lens. But right. if it's Emily or if it's an imagined speaker, whoever it is that says those words, no coward soul is mine. 
that is such a powerful and emotive statement. I'm literally, I'm obsessed by it. It goes around in my head so much. And mainly it's because Mm -hmm. I think today, if you were to put it in kind of today's speak, you would just be saying to somebody else, I'm not a coward. But the way that that line kind of focalise it through, uh, it's not that they're just, you're not a coward, it's your soul isn't a coward. You will do anything. That's Mm -hmm. strength, powerful strength just comes through that line. And it's one of the lines that's always stuck with me as um, if I was to think of any line of poetry of Emily's that makes me think that that tells us something about her, it's that one. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think it's such a, a... an amazing line of agency and um, self-declaration, really. Um, I love it. Absolutely love it. I might get it as a tattoo myself. And we are back. How exciting was it for me to say that? Lauren, the power I feel bringing us back into the moment. You like it? Oh, I like it. I could do it again. Oh, well, do it as many times as you like, Hannah. And we're back. From that last, from that bit that we just were saying. (laughs) Um, So it's funny that we've been talking about the Catherine Hughes article and all of these interpretations of Emily and people. And your your quote at the beginning as well about the um, antennae and things coming out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Because I'm reading a book at the moment that I actually picked up when I was staying in Chicago with you very recently. Uh, and it's called How to Suppress Women's Writing. And it's this collection of essays by Joanna Russ from the 80s. I think it was published in 83. Uh, the thing that's wild about it is that it's so relevant now. It's everything that we've just discussed this episode. Oh, God. <laughs> it's so, like, it's terrifying. And I know that I've recommended it to you and that uh, we're probably going to do an episode about the show at another time. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely going to come up a lot because... It talks so much about the Brontes. Austin comes up. George Eliot comes up. It's so relevant to this podcast. It's almost like this could be like a set reading. This would be number one of my required reading for mm-hmm. additional books, I think. And just like there are these words on the cover which kind of break down what the book's about. And they are, she didn't write it. She wrote it, but she shouldn't have. She wrote it, but look, look what she wrote about. She wrote it, but she only wrote one of it. She wrote it, but she isn't really an artist and it isn't really art. She wrote it, but she had help. She wrote it, but she's an anomaly. And it's like all of these things that people say about women writers to to suppress them, to bring them down. That's why they're saying it. And like, you could play bingo with that Catherine Hughes art school, just how many of those she hits. (laughs) I just was sitting here thinking about how many of those have been said about Emily Bronte. Like she wrote it, but she's an anomaly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people constantly say that she's just sort of this you know she's just like this wood nymph that you know was struck by lightning and had this one book idea out of nowhere or um she She wrote it it and only one yeah she wrote it and only one she wrote it but branwell helped her yeah or she didn't write it branwell wrote it yeah absolutely (laughs) we Um, should play this game with like every author we cover yeah basically like isn't that terrifying it is terrifying and the thing that gets me that I think happens the most with Austin is she wrote it, but look what she wrote about. Yes. And there's this great, there's this great line. I promise I won't go on about this book too much longer, but um, there's all of these great quotes from people discussing women's writing. And one of them is like, um, if it's about 
writing about war is important, but writing about a conversation in a dining room is not. Oh, that's such a bad, like, the book's in the other room. I can't go because we're recording now. But mm -hmm. I've got all of these quotes and they're great and I'll pull them out. And just like what men write about is important, but what women right. write about is not. And I had this great discussion at dinner with my friends right after buying it. And I kind of, I was talking to my friend Ashley and I was like, how many, how many books by women do you read? How many books by people of color do you read? Um, and she was like, well, I just prefer writing by men. And I didn't challenge her in that moment. Oh, but like, like, why? But like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Has she compared every book by a woman to every book by a man? No, but it's because <laughs> the women write trash. They write throwaway. Yeah. yeah. They write fiction. They don't write literature, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, that's insane. So that's, that's my rant. And I'll do I... some more when we talk about the book on the show properly. Yeah, I can't wait for that episode. Um. I can't wait for you to read it because I think I'm going to get so many like angry text messages from you like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a really good bit. And it compares all of the reviews about Wuthering Heights when um, when people thought it was written by a man. Well, they assumed it was a man because oh, it was anonymous. Oh, really? And then, all, no, sorry, it wasn't anonymous. It was um, when it was under a pen name. Yeah, Alice. under the pen yeah. name. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so all of the reviews from when they thought it was a man and then all of the reviews... I think some of them are from the same places about um, when it's revealed that it's a woman and like the tone, the tone shift. Oh, is... that's fascinating. Yeah. See, I told you. Yeah, you've got to put that in the post to me. I will. And then we'll do an episode about it. Another book um, that almost goes hand in hand with that that we can talk about on that same episode is um, A Secret Sisterhood. The Literary Friendships of Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf. Um, that's what I am reading right now, or listening to, rather, on audiobook at, during, like, 4 a.m. feeding. But I highly so recommend the audiobook of that, yeah. If you want a couple of books, that, like, uh, around the subject of what we discussed in the show, that aren't biographies, they're not the letters, they're not the novels right. themselves, then um, I think these are both two books that we'd recommend checking out and then let us know what your thoughts are on them as well yeah absolutely oh man i have a lot to say about like suppressing women's writing already and i haven't read the book yeah so we're but gonna save it. it we're gonna I'll save it for it another in. time i'm gonna suppress and if it you all have anything that you want to say about suppressing women's writing i'm not saying please try and suppress us but right. around the subject you know then um get in touch yeah and then how should they get in touch hannah well you can do that by finding us as always on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook by searching bonnets at dawn and joining our closed group. It's really active. The discussion's really great and we'd love to see you there. Yeah, that sounds good. And one more thing for you Emily fans out there. Um, we're going to sort of do an end of the year episode which celebrates some of Emily's best lines in poetry and in Wuthering Heights. These are the lines that, you know, you want to get tattooed on your body. So um, please send those in. We've had a few and they've been awesome. You guys have like great podcast voices. <laughs> Made me feel very self-conscious about my own. Um, you have a yeah. good podcast. Oh, thank you. It's very hard to listen to when I'm editing. But, um, <laughs> you know, just send those in, guys. Use your iPhones or you know, other phones are available as well, I'm sure. 
um, the audio like memo, just record it on the audio memo and then just go ahead and email that to Bonnets at Dawn. And if you do multiple takes, I'll I'll pick the best one. Be great. Be great do to it. hear your voice. Do us please. a favor. Throw a dog a bone. Yeah, please. All right. That's all. That's all I got. Peace. Bye. 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 <laughs>